I think I met Jamie like 12 years ago uh, when I was a freshman at Cal Poly and have, I have learned a lot from this guy. I uh, got to work with him as on staff with crew for a couple of years. And um, yeah, just been a real amazing blessing in my life and continue to, uh, to put in pr- to practice the things that Jamie's taught me personally. So um, honored to welcome you. Jamie, come on up and speak the word for us. Glad to have you this morning. Cool. Thanks, Greg. Very kind words. Thanks, Greg. Um, hey, it's great to be here, you guys. I think I say this every time, but I mean it every time. Like, it feels like I'm with family. It feels like I'm with friends. It kind of feels like I've come to my home church because I do know a lot of you guys. I know Greg and Carrie sitting right there. And um, I think Travis, I met when he was a freshman. We were down in Rosarito, Mexico, doing a spring break trip down there to kind of surf and work in an orphanage. I think we mostly surfed. Um, but we worked at an orphanage a little bit. And I think Travis led worship for us one of those mornings, maybe for like his first time with us at least. And uh, I'm like, oh, I love this guy. He's got a great heart, great musician. I remember we were in a bar. That's where we met for our morning devotionals was in this bar thing that was next to the hotel. Kind of an interesting situation. But anyway, it's, it's great to be here, you guys. Um, stoked to share from the word. Um, Brian said I could speak on anything I wanted to speak on, so I was kind of praying about that and thinking through that. And I'm just real, I'm actually really excited about what I'm teaching right now in crew because I feel like the Lord's been teaching me so much in that. And so what I want to do is teach from some of the series that we're doing right now. So kind of a preemptive apology to all my students. Sorry, guys, you're going to get a very familiar message, but, you know, I guess it's a little... Much to think that you were listening the whole time, the first time. So maybe this will be good for you. I don't know. Um, and, and the topic I'm speaking on this morning is abiding in the word. And I like that also because it sort of connects up with what I spoke on the last time I was here. And again, I don't expect you guys to remember that either. But it was on hermeneutics, which is studying God's word, understanding God's word, and, and making sure we're getting what God intended for us to understand about the word. This message, I think, is a complement to that. It's okay if you don't remember that first one or weren't even here. This is really a complement to that, but I think they go well hand in hand. It's, it's what the Lord was sort of directing me to teach on, so hopefully he's got some purpose in mind for that for each and every one of us this morning. So the passages I've been teaching through in Crew are John chapters 15 through 17. It's, it's Jesus' final discourse with his disciples. It's the longest teaching that you find in the New Testament. It's a pretty amazing set of passages. And we've been pretty much set in John 15 for a while now. I always think I'm going to go through a series in a year, and it usually takes me like two or three years. It's totally what happened. So John 15, and all those are, those are in the book of John, obviously. In the book of John, just to give you guys some background, is a book that is written, and John tells us why he wrote it. He wrote it so that we would believe in Jesus Christ and have eternal life. So this idea of belief is all through the book of John. I actually believe it's the most often used word in the book of John, I mean, besides the and uh and all those. But, I mean, it's like it's the main theme, and then, of course, Jesus is mentioned quite a bit. And what he talks about is how do you have eternal life? And one thing that you've got to remember when we're talking about eternal life is eternal life has an already aspect and also a not yet aspect. It's a very future thing. It's going to be living with Jesus and 
the Father and the kingdom of heaven, but it's also there's a now part to it. The kingdom is like that. The kingdom of God is somehow now in its realities, but it's also a present, it's also a future expectation. So eternal life is the very same way. Like we experience eternal life now and we will experience it future. So it's, it's a quantity of life. It's a duration of life, right? It's going to last forever. It's eternal. But there's also a quality of life that eternal life is. And that's what John talks about a lot in his book, through the words of Jesus, of course, that it's this spring of living water, that it's an abundant life, right? That it's a joyful life, that it's a life that bears fruit. But at the same time, this eternal life right now is full of suffering. There's pruning. There's a lot of heartache. So we're not there yet. We're not experiencing the fullness of eternal life, but we can experience its reality now, okay? So turn to John 15, if you're not already there. I'm just going to read off this thing, if that works. Um, John 15, verses 1 through 7. So this will be kind of the the jumping off point for what we're doing this morning. So Jesus, again, addressing his disciples. That's who this conversation is with, John 15 through 17, even 14, chapter 14 as well. It's just with the disciples, okay? These are like, he's like, this is what I need you guys to know before I take off. Okay, this is my final instructions to you. And then, of course, after he is resurrected, he gives some final words to the Great Commission. But this is the main, like, here's how you're going to do it once I leave. So he says, I am the vine, and my, father, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because the word which I have spoken to you abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So I want to do a little bit with this passage, and then we're going to jump off from here. So Jesus is saying, I am the, I am the vine. Actually, the passage, the New American Standard says, I am the true vine. And for Israel to hear the metaphor of a vine, they would often think of themselves because God would describe Israel as the vine or a vineyard. And Jesus is saying, well, I'm actually the true vine. I'm, I'm, I'm more genuine. I'm the real McCoy. Different than even the vine of Israel. And one of the things that you can think about is, you know, if Jesus is the true vine and that's who we're supposed to abide in, what are the things that, maybe the false vines that we tend to abide in? And, and for the Jews their religion was one of those false vines. They were trying to get all of life and all of their spirituality from their religion, the practices of it, right? Um, All the rituals of it. They were trying to find true life and to bear fruit by being involved in religion and not being rooted and connected in God himself. We obviously can have that same thing happen to us. Calvary Slow is not the true vine. 
Your small group is not the true vine. Even if you're in a discipleship relationship, that relationship is not the true vine. That's not where you're going to get your spiritual life from, though helpful, and religion can be very helpful. It's not the true vine. The other thing that John talks about is just the world and the things of the world. Those things aren't the true vine as well. So there's all these false vines that we're not supposed to abide in and try to get life from, but Jesus is the true vine, and we're supposed to abide in him. Now, I thought in teaching this passage, I would just kind of run through those section of verses and then move on to the the next verses and even into the next chapter. But what I notice happens, it happens in my spiritual life all the time, is I'll come across a truth that is really familiar. Like for this, for me, this one's familiar, the idea of abiding in the vine, pretty familiar truth. Maybe for the rest of us, if you've been around church before, you know, loving your neighbor is one of those familiar truths. Or just loving God or, or whatever. There'll be a familiar truth, and often it will be a very foundational truth. Okay, this abiding in the vine thing, really foundational. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Pretty foundational, right? Um, loving God, pretty foundational. Loving your neighbor, very foundational. But what, what I've often found is these foundational truths that are familiar are often the truths that are forgotten or we fail to experience the realities of them. And here's why. I think because they're so familiar, because they're so foundational, we kind of think, well, of course I'm doing that. I've heard this my whole life. Of course I'm abiding in the vine. Of course I'm loving God. Of course I'm loving others. We don't even reflect on the fact, am I really doing this? Because it's so foundational and it's so familiar, we think we must be doing it. I was driving up to Mountain Brook Community Church one night for our weekly meeting, and, um, and I, I was driving, and I noticed there probably was about 10 seconds that went by that I wasn't keeping my eyes on the road. I was actually watching these mountain bikers. It was night. They had their lights on. I was just like, oh, I love that trail. I wonder who's riding up there. I totally got distracted, right? If my mom was at home before I left and said, Jamie, keep your eyes on the road, I would have been like, yes, Mom, I know that. Drivers 101, of course, keep your eyes on the road. But I didn't, right? And it's one of those things that's foundational and familiar, but often forget to do, you know, forget to put it into practice. And I think that's really true with some of these spiritual truths. I also think it's true because sometimes it's kind of a vague, a vague or fuzzy notion, like abide in the vine, okay, I'll do that. Like, but what does that really mean? Like, abide in the vine. Like, how, do you, how do you abide in Jesus? Really? What is that? We don't use that word. We don't go around saying, well, abide in this. You know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a spiritual word that we're like, oh, yeah, I know that. Let's move on to the next chapter. And I don't think we get it. Now, what's, what's really fortunate is that, first of all, Jesus uses a metaphor that's helpful. You know, okay, a branch and a vine, that's really a helpful thing. Because you can think about, okay, well, what's going on there? Um, Kind of an interesting side note, when Paul talks about this sort of metaphor, he actually uses an olive tree and an olive branch. He reminds us Gentiles, so not those who are Jewish by nationality, but he reminds pretty much everyone in this room that we weren't originally a part of that vine or a part of that olive tree, that we are grafted in. You know, and one of the interesting things about grafting, my neighbor grafts uh, walnut trees, is that in order to be grafted in, 
the vine needs to be cut. It needs to be pierced. And when it's pierced, it actually bleeds out sap. And it's just kind of an image to remind us that we're not just a part of the vine because, oh, yeah, look at us. We are just born that way. No, Jesus was pierced and he bled so that we could be grafted into him, right? Now, what's happening there is when a, when a branch is grafted into a vine, they actually start to intermingle. Things get connected. They kind of become one. After time, you don't even know where that the branch was grafted in. It looks like a natural part of it. And, and the longer that that branch stays connected to the vine, the harder it is to pull it off, the harder it is to, you know, to, to mess with it because it's, it's remained in there. And by the way, that's what, that's what abiding really means. It means to remain in or to live in. You know, so I think the metaphor is really helpful as you think about what's going on with a branch and a vine. And, and, and stuff is flowing back and forth. Right, nutrients are going in, and all the junk is going back out, and it's a living, breathing relationship, you know. And I think I think the metaphor is helpful. <clears throat> Fortunately, what John does in his book is he unpacks the meaning of abide. John uses the word abide twelve times in his gospel, and then in First John he uses it sixteen times. Okay, so in those two books you see it twenty-eight times. In the entire rest of the New Testament, abide is only used three times. So if we want to try to get our minds around what it means to abide, the metaphor is helpful, but John realizes, again, through the words of Jesus, there's a lot more to be said. And so that's what he does in the book of John, in part, is he helps us understand what does it mean to abide. And there's three ways that he talks about abiding. Abiding in his word, which is where we're going this morning, abiding in his spirit, and then abiding in his love. So if you want to learn about abiding, study the book of John, and those are the three things that you're going to notice. It's word, it's spirit, and it's love. And those are foundational things, they're familiar things, but apart from these, you can do nothing. So we should try to understand what they mean. So that's where we're going. We're going to this side today. We're going to talk about abiding in his word. Now, the idea of being rooted in or remaining in God's word is not a New Testament concept, though it has realities in the New Testament that are not Old Testament. But just so you can see um, that this is not a new concept, in Psalm chapter 1, so the very beginning of the, the biggest book in the Bible, you see the psalmist saying, "...how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked." nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but delight. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree, right? The living metaphor again. Planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit, fruit metaphor, in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So again, not a, not a new concept. It's something that, Every Jew would be very familiar with the centrality of God's word. So it was very familiar to the Jews. It was very foundational to the Jews. But what you see in John is that these Jewish followers of God had failed to experience the realities of it. So let's look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5 is where Jesus has these... In- so we're going to look at the book of John, chapter 5, and then mostly in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is this like 
treasure trove of how do you abide in God's word? What does it mean to abide in God's word? So chapter 8 is really where John develops that concept. But I want, I want us to go to chapter 5 first. <clears throat> so he's talking to Jewish leaders. Okay, these are men who had memorized, memorized most, if not all, of the Old Testament. It was their life to know the word of God. They taught it. They lived by its codes and practices and ceremonies. Um, their, their politics centered from the word. Everything, everything in life came from the word of God. They knew the word of God better than anyone in this room, guaranteed. This is what Jesus says to them. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who he sent. So here are these guys that had memorized it and knew it and in many ways are living it out in their practices of daily living, but he's saying, you don't have, you're not abiding in the word. Okay, so abiding in the word is more than just memorizing it and even, in even many ways just living it out. Okay, so what is it? Well, let's go to John chapter 8, verse 37, um, and you start to get a picture of what, what it means to abide. So again, talking to these Jewish leaders, he says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. <laughs> You've been there from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, I know your roots. I know your history. Yet... You seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. And so another way of saying that is Jesus is saying that my word does not find its home in you. Now, if you actually bounce up a little bit, there's a, there's a context there where Jesus is talking about a slave versus a son, and a slave doesn't stay in the house forever. He's just kind of a hired servant. He's there temporarily. But the son remains in the house forever. And so what what Jesus is saying is, look, in order for you to be abiding in my word, my word needs to find its home in you, and it needs to remain in you and stay with you. Okay, It's not just a temporary guest in the home. Now, I imagine a lot of you guys, when you were younger, maybe you still do this, I don't know, um, had sleepovers or slumber parties. Guys don't call them slumber parties. You know, I don't know, we call them sleepovers. And when you have a sleepover, you know, especially as a little kid, you don't do anything to, like, get ready for it. You know, you just kind of, the, the dude comes over. You know, for me, we busted out our Atari. We played Pong. You know, pretty exciting, right? Or Monopoly or Risk or whatever. And, you know, and then you don't even, like, bother to, like, make up a bed for him. You just, like, crash on the floor. You sleep on the couch, you know. And in, honestly, like, a day later, there's really no evidence that there was a sleepover. Um, there might be some Captain Crunch under the couch still or ding-dong wrappers that are kind of laying around. But there's really no evidence that there was a sleepover because it was this temporary thing, right? Well, when I got married, 
It's a little different than the sleepover, you know, because she was coming to remain with me forever, you know, and things changed in the house when Gretchen moved in. She brought in all this stuff called furniture. It was an amazing thing. A nightstand? Like, who would have thought of putting something right next to the bed so you could put things on it? I learned about shams and dust ruffles and, like, all this amazing stuff. We actually had towels in the kitchen to wipe your hands off, not the paper towels that you rip off. And, and I learned a lot. I learned that my vintage Rip Curl Tom Curran poster was not wall art, that that does not qualify as wall art. My old surfboard did not qualify as wall art. Like, things absolutely changed when she moved in. Because she was coming in to stay forever. And we need to think about God's word. I think a lot of times God's word is like the sleepover where we come to church, we hear it, it maybe has a little bit of effect, but four days, two days later, it's gone. You know, Jesus wants to move in. And I need to remind you guys of this. When we talk about the word, what John does in his gospel is he personifies the Word. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When we're talking about the Word coming to have a home in us or to remain with us forever, do you realize that's Jesus coming to remain and live with us forever? When we study the Word, we're not just studying like words on a page. Right, Hebrews tells us that the word is living and active. You ever realize that that's because the word is Jesus and he's in our hearts and he's living and active? Part of the new covenant is that the word would be written on our hearts and our minds. It's because Jesus is living in us. Abiding in the word is recognizing that the word is in us, that he is here living in us. And it means it's a complete takeover. It's not like here's the corner of the house, here's your little spot. It's, you're, you're, you're replacing all the furniture. Every belief, every desire, every motive, every dream, everything is being taken over by the word of God. Can you imagine if when Gretchen moved in, I had this little closet, or let's just say I had a room, where I was like, uh, uh you can't go in there. Yeah, you, yeah, we're married, and, and this house is yours, and you're, you're going to be here forever, but you can't go behind that closed door. That's just stuff I don't want you to see. The same is true. When we have Jesus and the word abiding in us, we can't have little parts of our lives. We can't have stuff hidden behind closed doors where we don't give them access to. And again, this is hopes and dreams like of husbands, of wives, of houses, of healthy kids or whatever, all these things that we kind of, we worry about. Sometimes we don't pray about it because we're afraid if we pray about it, God doesn't answer and then we won't believe in God anymore. Like we have these weird ways of thinking about prayer and about God. We have to release that stuff to him, give him access to every room in our house. So abiding in the, abiding in the word is making sure that that word takes a, finds its home in us and has access to every single part. Well, when John, and through the words of Jesus, is talking about abiding in the word, he, he shares with us some of the results, some of the fruit of abiding in his word. And I want to I share with you some of those things. So again, John chapter 
8, verses 31 through 32, we learn why it's so important to have the Word of God abiding in us. And again, we have to go beyond this idea of memorizing it or knowing it and having our theology down. It has to do more than that. It has to come in, has to take over, has to replace all the furniture, which our beliefs, desires, all that kind of stuff. But here's the result. So verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. So these are the guys who have kind of figured it out now. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free or set you free. Okay? So the question is, what is it that you're set free from? Okay, so again, this is one of those truths that probably a lot of people have heard. Like, yeah, the truth will set me free. Okay, what does that really mean? It's from foundational, it's familiar. What does it really mean? And so there's a few things. So first of all, you're free from sin. So in verses 33 through 34, he explains that this is what you're free from. We are Abraham's descendants, have never truly been enslaved to anyone. How is that you say, you will become free? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So one thing that the word does in our lives is it frees us from the power of sin. And that's a pretty awesome thing, right? Frees us from the power of sin. Now, the way that that works is, um, go to the next slide, because I don't think I have this in my notes. Awesome. Slides are so helpful, especially when you forget to put it in your notes. So it's, it's free from the penalty of sin. I should have mentioned that first, okay? Um, verse 21 talks about how um, you'll, not have, you'll not be with the Father, so the penalty of sin is talked about there. The power of sin, Romans 6, is a great place to look at. So it's the power of sin over you. So the penalty of sin is kind of those future things like, oh, without payment of sin, I'm not going to be able to be in the presence of the Father. Power of sin is kind of a reality right now, right? Sin will keep you from experiencing eternal life right now. And then the effects of sin, which are guilt and shame and fear and depression and isolation. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. But when you're living in sin and have sin going on, you're guilty, you know, which you think you're going to be punished by God or something's not good's going to happen in your life. You're shameful. There's something wrong with me. You know, there's this fear. It leads to depression, all these kinds of things. So that's the stuff that God frees us from when we allow the word to take root and, um, and we follow it rather than following sin. One of the things that happens with sin, too, if you, if you think about this, if you're not abiding in the word, that means you're abiding in something else. You found a different vine to attach to. And a lot of times we will abide in sin. We'll, we'll try to draw life and pleasure and joy from sin. And just like when a branch is abiding in a vine, you know, there's that intermingling that happens. There's a connection that happens. Sin does the very same thing. The longer you remain in sin, the longer we turn to sin, there's this connection that happens, there's an intermingling, there's a rootedness that takes place. Probably the best example of this is sexual sin. You know, when we experience other partners and we experience things sexually, there's actually a chemical released in your brain 
that solidifies those experiences and causes you to kind of be rooted in that. And that's why when there's a breakup, after there's been sexual involvement, there's tearing and there's hurt. Because there's this intermingling that happens. There's this connection. There's a codependence that actually forms. That's why sin is so addictive, because we're, getting, we're dependent on it for the stuff that we should be getting from God, the, the power and joy and pleasure in life. And so the reality is we're designed to be codependent people. There's no shame in that. The question is, who are we going to be codependent on or what are we going to be codependent on? You're going to be codependent on somebody or something. What are those things that we're connecting and attaching ourselves to other than Jesus himself? Particularly what we're talking about is the truth of his word. So you're going to be a slave to something. The question is, whose slave are you? The next thing that John talks about in chapter 8 is that we're freed not just from the penalty, power, and the results and effects of sin, but we're also freed from lies. Okay, And I'm going to make a bold statement here. Our real problem is not our sinful behavior. That's just a fruit. Jesus says you'll know a tree by its fruit, A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. The fruit is our behavior. The real problem is the tree, what's going on in our tree, which is our heart, our soul, our minds. The real problem with sin is the cause of it, which is, I think, believing false things. We're either not trusting God that he's good we're not, we don't believe he's going to provide. We don't believe he loves us. We have all these false beliefs about God that leads us to false behavior or bad behavior. We have false views about who we are. We're not a loved son or daughter. We're not forgiven. Whatever those false beliefs are, that's what's going to lead to sin. And so the word of God is so important and so powerful because it's getting at the very root of our sinful behavior. It's teaching us what's true about who God is and what's true about who we are. And when you understand those truths, you're naturally going to do right action. But if that word is not rooted in us, abiding in us, remaining in us, taking its home in us, then we're going to be profoundly affected by the lies around us. Let's just look at the passage real quick, real quickly where that comes from. <clears throat> Why do you not understand what I am saying? Is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whatever he speaks, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Okay? Here's what the enemy does, I believe. The enemy uses lies and deception. First of all, that's his nature. That's kind of how he works. But he does that because it's effective. I think lies are kind of like biological warfare. It's hard to see it. You almost don't even notice it's there. But I don't know if you guys remember the anthrax scare that happened right after 9-11. People were so terrified of that 
because it's this invisible thing that is absolutely lethal, that before you know it, it's in your system, it's taking over, and you're dead. And I think lies work the very same way, that it's so effective because it kind of goes unnoticed. And it, and it starts to take root in our minds, in our hearts, and before we know it, we're, we're not just believing these things, but we're actually living them out and living contrary to the word of God. Okay? And the thing about lies is that they're all around us. It's everywhere we go. It's, you know, it's TV, it's media, it's posters, it's music. It's all around us. And somehow we think that when we come here on a Sunday morning and hear a message for 45 minutes, or however long Stupar goes, um, we think that that's going to counteract all that other stuff that's going on, you know? And the enemy is totally fine that we don't go and worship Satan and that we're not involved in some really gnarly sin because as long as we're believing lies, that's going to have enough of effect to turn us away from God and point us towards other things. It's absolutely lethal because it's so subtle and goes unnoticed. I wish I had more time to unpack this, but I do not. I'm just going to throw this philosophical bomb out there. You do not choose your beliefs, okay? If I said, hey, I want you to choose to believe that I have a full head of hair and I'm wearing skinny jeans or whatever, you can't choose to believe that, okay? You can't. You come to believe things. You come to believe things based on evidence or based on the Holy Spirit and based on outside sources. You come to believe in things. Now, what you do choose is what you're going to place your faith in, what you're going to trust in. You don't get to choose what you believe, but you get to choose what you're going to put your place, faith and trust in. And we do get that choice. Okay, what are we going to choose to follow? But your initial belief system, you come to believe these things. And again, the Holy Spirit certainly is at work here. What we can do is control our environment and control the things that we expose ourselves to so that we come to believe the right things. That's why getting in the Word is so crucial. Because if you don't, you're just going to be affected by your environment, and whether you know it or not, germ warfare, right? You're going to come to believe false things. It's scary. It really is scary. So we have to be proactive to get involved in the truth of God's word and other truths, honestly, so that we come to believe those things, we strengthen the beliefs that we already have, and then we're going to naturally do the right things because we're placing our faith and trust in those. Lives are, lies are extremely powerful, and I just want to end with this. I want to end with kind of my own testimony of the power of lies, and then I want to just share some quick application So here's how lies work in my life. Well, they work in a lot of different ways, but here's the most kind of profound way that I've noticed. The beginning of every school year, um, I've been doing this crew thing for about 15 years at Cal Poly. The beginning of every school year is like the worst time of the year for me, partly because I've been on an academic schedule since kindergarten, and so I'm very much in the rhythm of like school, summer, school, summer. I love summer. I love vacation. And so the beginning of school, I'm still like that little kid, like, I don't want to go to school, you know, I don't want to have to go back to work kind of thing. So that's part of it. That's part of why the beginning of the school year is so hard. But the other part of it is I start to feel very overwhelmed. I start to feel very inadequate. 
I start to feel like this ministry is so complex and why am I the one leading this? Like, I, I, I feel un, unprepared for it. Um, and what happens is the enemy knows this. He knows that I start to go through these kind of self-reflective and kind of worrying mindset. And the enemy is an opportunist. And so when he sees opportunity, he likes to jump on it. And that's exactly what he does. And he starts to cause me to question, like, am I the right guy to lead this thing? Do I have what it takes? And then I start thinking, you know what, there's, there's better leaders out there. There's leaders who have more passion. There's leaders who can preach more strongly. There's leaders who have more vision. You know, I'm not even an extrovert. I'm not a people person. Like, I don't enjoy being around people all the time. Maybe that would be the best person for me. And then what I do is I start to compare myself to others. I start to think of Adam Nixon, who's on our staff team. And Adam's the extreme extrovert. Everyone loves being around Adam. He's so passionate. He moves people to do anything. If Adam's excited about it, everyone else gets excited about it. It doesn't matter what it is. Or I think about this guy on my team, Dan Kroll, who actually leads 11 countries within crew. I mean, the guy's an amazing leader, super de- decisive, and just incredible. So I start to compare myself, and I'm like, those are the guys who should be leading this thing. And then he likes to just accuse me and condemn me for telling me, like, oh, you're, you're just, you're not, you don't have what it takes. You're less than adequate. Well, you, you have no business leading this ministry. Like, what are you doing? People like Adam better. Dan's a better speaker. You know, there's so... And I'll start to compare myself to, like, John Piper and, you know, all these people. And I'm like, I suck at communicating the word. And, <clears throat> but here's what I'll do. Sometimes in an effort to respond to these lies, what I'll do is I'll be like, well, yeah, well, Adam didn't go to seminary. He doesn't know the word that well. And... John Piper sounds mean sometimes when he teaches. And, you know, and, and I'll start to turn to like this sort of self-righteous condemnation of others and get my friends, and they're like, oh, yeah, you're great, and we love you. you know. The truth is, I don't have what it takes. The truth is, there are better leaders who are stronger, decisive decision-makers, they're better speakers. They're more extroverted. I could totally fill in the blank. That's the reality. And Jesus says, I know that, but that's not the point. Sure, there's someone better. There's always going to be someone better. But I want you. I've chosen you to actually do this job. And you don't have what it takes, and I know that. But that's the way I like it. Because I want you to abide in me. And trust in me. And draw everything you need from me. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. And for all of us, I mean, the fact that we've been invited to represent Christ, we don't have what it takes. We don't have the fruit. Um, And if you're a leader, you don't have what it takes. Um, and there are, there's always, you guys, there's always going to be somebody better at what you do. There's always going to be somebody more beautiful. There's always going to be somebody who's a better musician. There's always going to be somebody with a better voice. There's always, there's always going to be somebody better. But Jesus says, I'm calling you because I want you to do this job right now. He loves to use unqualified, inadequate, insecure people. And I am the first and foremost. 
And so this ministry that I've been a part of, the awesome thing is that he gets the glory because I don't have what it takes. I love that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We just have to try to notice when we're being lied to, that inner voice. And so you've got to ask yourselves, what lies am I believing about God, myself, and others? And I wish I had time to you know, talk about examples, but I don't. I've actually ran over time. So here's the things that we need to do. What do you do now? Well, here's the thing. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So we need to continue in his word. Now, I think for everyone it's going to look differently, but get in the word daily. There's tons of devotionals on the internet, on your iPhone. There's no excuse for not getting in the word. You know, there's the U version thing and John Piper and all these awesome people that have all these devotionals. Just get in his word daily. We need it daily because we're surrounded by the lies. It is good to meditate on it, to memorize it, to hide it in our hearts, to journal on it. Talk about the word. When you're with your buddies, talk about surfing and mountain biking, whatever else you're interested in, but talk about the word. Like, what do you, just ask the question, so what are you learning in the word? And let it go from there. And then read really good Christian books because there's a lot of guys out there who have studied the word, who know it well, and we get to kind of jump in on their quiet times and hang out with them and read, you know, hear what they're learning and, and be there with them. And so I listed some authors up there. Let me pray for, your guy, for you guys. Um, and just again, thanks for letting me be here. Lord, thanks that your word is living and active and that he dwells within us. And just pray that we would continually draw from it, allow it to take over every part of our heart, our soul, our mind, our dreams, our worries, our aspirations. Lord, I pray against the lies of the enemy who want to take us out and defeat us. Would we do what you did and respond with the truth of your word? In Jesus' name, amen.